0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: Just because you're meeting people where you're at doesn't mean that you're responsible for their comfort and it's not about challenging them or them never feeling uncomfortable. You know, it's it's creating an entry point into an issue area, but it's not doing people's work for them.
0: That's Rebecca Nagel, an award-winning advocate and writer focused on advancing Native rights and ending violence against Native women. Rebecca joined us at Work It to talk about crafting stories when an audience doesn't share your experience or understanding. I'm Dessa, and this is Work It, the podcast, a compilation of some of the best moments from the live event.
1: So before we get started today, I just want to do a land acknowledgement. So here in the great city of Los Angeles, we're on the land of the Tongva people. Oscio Nagar, Gohin, Taton, Jopo, Missouri, Awatesessa Dola, Digagi Gayeelegue, Michael Sarah Dundon, Aguile Jugesa, Francis Polson, Dudon, Waduly Suweya, Utasa. Um, hi, my name is Rebecca Nagel. I'm a citizen of uh, Cherokee Nation. I'm also the writer and the host of the podcast called This Land. And thank you for letting me introduce myself in my own language. <laughs> I became a storyteller because I didn't see people like me and stories from my community in mainstream news and media or podcasts for that matter. And I would assume that a lot that is true for a lot of you all who are in this room today. Um, And so today what we're going to talk about is one of the barriers that you have to break through, you know, when you're breaking into mainstream audiences that I feel like doesn't get talked about a lot. And that's breaking through people's ignorance. Um, you know, how do you tell your story to an audience that doesn't share your understanding or your experience? How how do you tell your story to an audience that doesn't even have a reference point for your experience? Um and so we're gonna we're gonna start specific and then get broad. But I wanna first start by talking about uh, Native representation in mainstream media. So, um, pop quiz. Uh, Raise your hand if you can name a famous Native American actor. And if you say Johnny Depp, we're gonna fight later. I'm kidding. (laughs) All right, raise your hand if you can name or think of a book written by a Native author. A famous Native musician? A famous Native politician? How many of you, or a famous native podcaster, obviously not me, because I would be cheating. <laughs> um, how many of you can name a famous Native American person who is famous for anything, anything under the sun, who was born after the year 1950? And yes, that rolls out, like, Sitting Bull and Pocahontas and Sacagawea. So, if you answered... <laughs> no to most or all of those questions, it's not an accident, it's not a coincidence. You know, As Native Americans, we are systemically erased from mainstream media, from pop culture, um, from K through 12 education, you know, and the me- media that you consume today, even though we are 2% of the population in the United States, we represent less than 1 10th of 1% of people in film, television, and media. Um, A really awesome researcher, Dr. Stephanie Freiberg, who's Tulalip, has um, done a lot of research to get really specific about what this looks at. And she looked at um, the 345 most popular television shows in the two decades between 1987 and 2007. And of the 2,336 characters on their shows, can anyone guess how many were Native American? Just shout out a couple numbers it was a little bit better than zero, it was three. <laughs> three better than zero. Um, it, what she also found in her research is that when we are depicted, um, it's almost always as historical images. So in 2015, she released a report where 95 of the first 100 Google image search results for Native American or American Indian were historicized images. So we're sort of always that stoic Indian in the tepia scented photograph. And this has real impacts on how the public perceives us, you know? I mean, this is the, you know, just a screenshot from my laptop of the Google search results for Dude Native, you know? And in case you're wondering, like, yes, we pay taxes, and no, we don't get free money. (laughs) Um, And some of us celebrate Thanksgiving, you know? (sighs) But... <laughs> um the what has happened because there's not real information about real contemporary people you know most people's reference point in the United States is sort of way off the mark and so um, there's a report that came out in 2018 called uh reclaiming native truth and in their surveys they found that two-thirds of Americans don't think that Native Americans experience significant racial discrimination today they don't think it's a big problem for us Two- thirds of the population. That is happening in a country where Native Americans face the highest rates of rape and murder, the highest rates of police violence, of poverty. I know another insane statistic is that 40% of people in the United States today don't even think that we exist. Um, And so, you know, and you can blame it on the individual. You can say that, you know, people need to do a better job of educating themselves. And why that's true, I mean, I think we always sort of have to go back to the systemic reasons for why things are the way they are. And it's a systemic erasure of Native people um, from, you know, contemporary media and contemporary pop culture that leads to those really wacky views that a lot of people have of us. And it's not just citizens, it's elected officials, too. We're gonna give this video a little listen. My name is Mark Trehant I'm the editorial page editor of the Seattle Post Intelligencer and a member of the Native American Journalists Association. (laughs) Most school kids learn about government in the context of city, county, state, and federal. And, of course, tribal governments are not part of that at all. Mr. President, you've been a governor and a president, so you have a unique experience looking at it from two directions. What do you think tribal sovereignty means in the, tri- in the 21st century, and how do we resolve conflicts between tribes and the federal and state governments?
0: Yeah. Uh, tribal sovereignty means that, it's sovereign. It means you're a, you're a, you've been given sovereignty and you're viewed as a sovereign entity. And therefore, the relationship between the federal government and tribes is one between sovereign entities.
1: So uh, we can laugh at George Bush. Um, It's kind of hard not to. But... Who knows what a federally recognized tribe is? You know, how many folks can like name three federally recognized tribes? And Cherokee, Navajo, Pueblo, Lakota, those aren't the names of tribes, just like American isn't the name of a country. You know, how many people know what the Indian Reorganization Act did or, you know, what the policy of land allotment was, in which, like, within the span of 50 years, tribes lost two thirds of our land base? You know, that stuff isn't taught. Does anybody know the impact of the Alphonse Supreme Court case or can name one law, any law passed by Congress? Or one Supreme Court case that impacted Native rights. You know, and this for me is sort of why. I'm a storyteller because I don't think that you can extract sort of policy change from narrative. You know, the stories that we tell ourselves as a country about who we are, where we came from, what we're doing, absolutely impact the policies that we pass, you know? And I believe that we're not gonna get policies that benefit tribes until the people who are voting and sending people to Washington know what the heck a tribe is, right? You know, a lot of times, I. Make the analogy um, of sometimes where it's sort of the um, the wall I have to get past as a native journalist. It would be kind of like as a feminist. If when I talk to people about feminism, they're like, you know what? It's so messed up. You can't vote. <laughs> I'd be like, well, that was about a hundred years ago. But that's where a lot of people's point of references is, is sort of like circa 1890. And then what's happened, you know, with Native American rights and our history is mostly blank for the past 100 years. Um, And so it's challenging. It's frustrating. um, But it's also work that I really believe in because I think that um, this type of narrative change is a really important part of social change. And I don't think this is just specific to Native issues. You know, I'm sort of laying this out so that you guys can think about it in this way, but it's not just impacting Native Americans, you know? Despite it having everything to do with the current immigration crisis, not to mention how much it's impacted millions of people's lives, how many of us really know what the United States government did in Central America, you know? Like, what? when did our CIA help topple the democratically elected uh, leader of Guatemala, you know? like before I looked it up for this talk, I probably couldn't even tell you the decade. You know, I think climate change is another really good example where it's an issue that it's complicated, it's abstract, it's a lot of science. It's something that I follow and that I really care about. But, you know, if you sort of cornered me and asked me to explain to you, like, the true difference between 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming and 2 degrees Celsius of warming, why some people say that one is okay and the other and what the tipping point is, I don't know that if I could give you a coherent answer on that. And it's, You know, and I think that goes back to how the media covers it, how it shows up in the news, and what information we're getting as consumers of that media. So... (laughs) And sort of breaking through those barriers or um, breaking through people's ignorance, how do you do it? You know, how do you um, give information to people in a way that, A, they can track and they can follow and they can digest? I think, um, B, that creates that emotional connection because that's when people are really going to care about an issue. And I would say a lot of times that as a storyteller, that's going to be the same emotional connection that you have to the issue and inviting your audience into that um and lastly and you know I think we have to talk about this with podcasting how do you keep people engaged how do you keep people entertained you know how do you keep people coming back to that story um so we're going to talk about a few examples and um First, I'm going to talk about uh, some of the challenges we had when making the podcast This Land. Um, So, This Land is a podcast I worked on with uh, Crooked Media on Neon Hum. And um, when we were in the very early stages of production, um, before we even had an episode outline, I made a list of the different things that people really needed to know or to be able to understand, to not just follow the story, but to understand... um, the case that we were talking about. So it was things like people need to understand like who has criminal jurisdiction in Indian country, what a federally recognized tribe is, the history of the five tribes in Oklahoma that the case impacts and sort of both like our early 1900s history and how the laws that Congress passed that impact us are are very similar and so we have a similar stake in the case but we're like separate people in terms of culture and in terms of governance. Uh, We also needed people to understand uh, Supreme Court procedure and so Gorsuch was sitting out. So instead of it being order of nine justices, it was eight and so then people needed to understand Understand, like what would happen if there was a tie which upholds the lower court's decision, which was actually like really good because the tribe won the lower court's decision. We needed people to understand things like that. You know, when we talk about the history of our land in Oklahoma, we weren't from there. We were actually removed to Oklahoma, so we had to talk about the 1830s removal treaty. And nobody wants to listen to eight hours of that, of the, sort of like the list of all of the things that you need to explain. And that's not why I wanted to tell the story of this case in the first place, because it's not, it's not why this case matters to me personally is a story and it's not the story of how the case happened so um You know, when we were developing the story, um, we wanted to talk about what the podcast was really about. So this land is a podcast about a Supreme Court case that will determine the future of half the land in Oklahoma and five tribes, including mine. And the case started in a really unusual place. It started in a small town murder in the late 90s where a Creek citizen murdered another citizen of Muscogee Creek Nation and was sentenced to death by the state of Oklahoma. And in his appeal, he saw that Oklahoma didn't have jurisdiction to convict him because the crime happened on a reservation. But Oklahoma says that that reservation no longer exists, and that's the question before the Supreme Court right now. And in 2020, we will find out if the Supreme Court will order the largest restoration of Native land in U.S. history or if they're going to take that land away from us. Again, Um, So in trying to uh, create compelling stories and trying to get information away from people in a way that is easy to digest and is intelligible and entertaining, there are a few things that I think are really sort of like helpful pinpoints of how to do that. So we're going to go through that real quick with some examples. Um, So the first of all is to use stories to teach facts and history. So when you have that sort of initial list of everything that you need your listener to understand, try and find the story through which you can um, give them that information. So we're going to give a listen to an example from a podcast called uh, Missing and Murdered by Connie Walker. Nora says Lillian used to travel with her to workshops and meetings for Indigenous women in the province. One day, she went to pick up Lillian, and when she arrived, Lillian was distraught and holding a newspaper.
0: So that morning, I went to pick her up and she came out of her house and she was holding the newspaper and she had it like this. She was crying. I said, what's wrong? She said.
1: These are my babies. So um, Missing and Murdered Finding Cleo is a podcast series that's really about how the Canadian government systemically um, took Native kids out of their communities and out of their families and the devastating impact of that. But the way that Connie Walker tells that story is there are siblings who are all adopted out and they were scattered across North America, the U.S. and Canada, and they've reconnected and they're trying to find out what happened to one of their siblings that they believe is dead. But they don't know where she was adopted to. They don't even know if she's alive or not. They don't know how she died. And so it's sort of the story of how they connect all of those dots. And through the story, you see how damaging this policy was. And this clip is kind of from the climax of the season um, where they, she investigates sort of what happened to the mom and what happened when the kids were taken away. And the mom actually found a newspaper ad of her kids being advertised for people to adopt. And it's this example that just really shows how inhumane The policy was that children, humans, would be in the newspaper sort of like the way like a dog or a cat would be. The next uh, tidbit is to develop characters. So as humans, we're gonna connect more to a person before we connect to a large and abstract issue. Um, So this example is from 1619 by Nicole Hannah-Jones. And um, this episode starts with her describing just her really beautiful relationship with her uncle and then what happened when her uncle got cancer. Let's give it a listen.
0: So it took literally my uncle getting a death sentence before he was able to get health insurance. That health care gets him out of those free clinics and into an actual cancer clinic in Illinois. And it's there that the doctors give us the news that had they been able to see him months before, he could have had a fighting chance. But it was too late.
1: And so over the course of that episode, you know, she goes into um, how the lack of access access to healthcare that we have in the United States is really rooted in systemic anti-black racism and, you know, sort of all of the stuff that comes up whenever this country talks about welfare, um, of not wanting to help poor people, but that being code for people of color. Um, And she doesn't start you there. She just starts by sort of describing her beautiful relationship with her uncle as she was growing up, and then talks about his preventable death and how the system created that situation. And that story takes you through, you know, then the almost hundred years of U.S. policy that you learn throughout the episode, but you start by understanding why it matters, you know, and why it matters to real people. Um another good point, and this was something I actually really struggled with uh, when making this land, is to tie the information to the plot. And so both stories and teaching work well when you segment them out. And so I a lot of times think about developing um, scripts and outlines for podcasts is sort of like leaving your listeners a little breadcrumb trail where you want them to sort of follow along piece by piece. And the reason I found this really hard is I actually came from a print journalism background. And when you're writing, especially for online, where a lot of people don't even read the whole article, you, you put everything up top. You know, you have that nut graph that kind of says the whole idea and then everything kind of flows from there. And I think of podcasting or audio media being almost the opposite where you want people to get pieces of information you know one piece at a time and i think sometimes when you have to explain a really complicated idea that needs to be broken up you can even find a way for the plot to be driven by the listener always getting new pieces of information i think a really good example of this is um, caliphate where you learn so much about isis but it's through the reporter's invest the, the story of her investigation and meeting an ex-recruit of going to muzzle of finding this- this briefcase of finding the person who had the briefcase in the documents and what does it mean about the inner workings of that government um and so that's a way when you sort of make that giant list of stuff you have to like teach the audience about is a way to sort of lay it out where people always feel like they're waiting for the next thing which is what you want in a serial podcast um I think another really great thing to do is to use metaphor. So when you're talking about like an abstract concept that most people don't have a reference point, find the thing that people have a reference point for and use that to teach the thing that people don't know. Um, So in this land, uh, there was some um, information about how like Indian country in Oklahoma works and what's considered Indian country and what's not. That was pretty complicated. And so uh, we came up with this metaphor. Let's give it a listen. So they broke up these reservations and they gave everybody or they allotted under different ways and different formulas land to different Indians. Picture a sheet cake. Allotment came along and sliced up the cake into a bunch of pieces. The pieces are now owned by individual citizens in the tribe, not the tribe as a whole. And so um, we actually continued to use that metaphor because what's relevant in this case is that people own mineral rights instead of surface rights. So we, like, extended the metaphor to, you know, talk about the icing of the cake and the cake itself. (laughs) And um, it was the idea of actually the executive producer, Vikram Patel, and that's another thing that I think is great. Um, You know, we had great editors and great people working on this land. Um, I know Catherine St. Louis is here at the conference. She was the editor um, as well, and I'm, it is just very helpful, I think especially when you're working with material that you're really familiar with, to sometimes have those outside perspectives on the team to help you do that work of translating. And lastly, uh, the sort of my last little takeaway tidbit is to just name what people don't know. You know, don't be afraid to point out people's ignorance. Sometimes you kind of have to dispel the myths that are in people's heads before you can get them to the information that you want them to digest. Um, so here's an example, uh, again, from this land. Um, you know, we had an episode in episode two. We were introducing listeners to the tribe, Muskogee Creek Nation and the government that's really at the center of this case but to do that we kind of had to dispel you know the stereotypes that are in people's minds about what a tribe is so um, yeah let's give it a listen. If the place where you imagine contemporary tribal leaders conduct their business looks like a teepee or a wigwam you want to pause here and erase that mental image. Instead picture City Hall, the county courthouse, A state office building. So, you know, I think that a lot of times when um, we're talking about contemporary tribal governments, you know, people sort of picture like dances with wolves or something like that (laughs) versus, you know, a democratically elected three branch, you know, government that is just as sort of bureaucratic as, you know, the city of Los Angeles or a county or a state government. Um, And so... You know, I, I think um, if you know that there is information that your listeners are going to have that is maybe going to be a bias that they're unaware of or just misinformation that they're coming to your podcast with, you know, don't be afraid to name it and point it out. Um so I think doing this type of work comes with some challenges, right? It can be hard to talk to folks that are sort of outside of your community or outside of the people who are impacted by the issues that you're talking about. So you know, one challenge is translation exhausting. It is tiring <laughs> to explain things to people. And a lot of times when you're working on stuff like this, you're not just going to be explaining it in the script. You're going to be explaining it to the people that you're working with. You're going to be explaining it to people who are asking you questions on social media, you're going to be explaining it, you know, when you just sort of like run into people and you're having conversations about it. And I know there are a couple episodes um, that we worked on that go into my own personal family history and also the history of my tribe that are just, you know, the information in the history is devastating. And so there was also just that layer of, you know, trauma and pain in addition to figuring out how to make it a workable script. And so I think that's just one thing to, um, I found uh, that it helped to be aware of and to just know that that was going to come up. I think other challenges are, um, you know, I, I, like even today being here, I <laughs> have a lot of imposter syndrome. And I think it can be kind of hard, um, you know, with when you're working on a project like i know with this land it would it would keep me up at night to make sure that i was really getting things right, and that the way that I was presenting the legal information was accurate, that the way that I was telling the story was helpful to the communities who are impacted by it. Um, And especially, you know, if you're kind of the person in the room who's like that level of quality control, the weight and the responsibility of that can be a lot. And it can also feel overwhelming to feel like you have to speak for an entire community. And so I think that those are things that, um, you know, I try and have folks that I can like run things by, like other Native folks or other native journalists that I work with, um, you know, to see, to get feedback, to get other people to weigh in on things um, so that I don't feel like I have to do it alone. But it's also just something to be aware of that if you're gonna do this type of work, there's things that are probably gonna come up. And then I think in external challenges are, um, you know, meeting people where they're at, like I always remember there was this moment where I put blood, like just a reference to blood quantum in one of the scripts and the editor was like, what's blood quantum? And I was, oh, right, you know, most people who, like, even though as Native people, you kind of can't escape blood quantum, it comes up everywhere. Um, a lot of people who are not native don't know what that is. And so there's sort of that constant checking of making sure that the way that you're presenting the information is something that people can get. Um, I think one challenge is explaining without giving a lecture. So when you have a lot of teaching to do, you know, um, like, I wish I could take everyone back to, like, elementary school and change the curriculum (laughs) But then when I'm, you know, storytelling, people don't want to feel like they're back in their civics classroom. So how do you, how do you convey that information that people need without giving a lecture? And then I think what's really hard is, um, I know like when I got the opportunity to create those podcasts, I wanted to put absolutely everything into it because I was like, oh my gosh, this is this huge platform and we need to tell people everything that they need to know about everything. And, um, you know, so then there's that hard, inevitable decision of what to cut out. So, you know, what, I'm, what we're talking about here in doing this kind of storytelling or doing this narrative change, you know, you can talk about it as sort of like not preaching to the choir, talking to people who are outside of your bubble, translating, educating, meeting people where they're at. But for me, sort of what um, underlines all of that is this idea of working towards narrative change and sort of building audiences and building uh, people who aren't familiar with issue areas and, you know, changing the way that they perceive those things. What it is not is, you know, or what I'm not advocating you know, telling people that they should go out and do is placating or appeasing people's ignorance, you know? It's not about being agreeable. Just because you're meeting people where you're at doesn't mean that you're responsible for their comfort, and it's not about challenging them or them never feeling uncomfortable. You know, it's, it's creating an entry point into an issue area, but it's not doing people's work for them, right? It's inviting them to do their own work. And then I think another important distinction is that what I'm talking about, I guess, in this talk is not really, media for a community by a community. And so I think, you know, if you're a podcaster and you're like, well, I'm I'm not trying to talk to people who don't share my experience. I'm trying to talk to people who do share my experience. I think that that's equally valid. And I think, And I don't think there's a hard line between those things. Like when we were making the podcast, you know, I get emails both from people, you know, who are Native, who are from Oklahoma, who have been following the case, who are so excited to see it getting more media attention and to see the history of their tribe in a podcast. And also non-Native folks who are emailing me and saying, wow, I had absolutely no idea this was going on. Um, So I think both are possible at the same time too. Um, so thanks guys. Um, thanks everybody for, um, listening to the talk. I wanted to give a shout out to some awesome podcasts that are made by some other native women. So if you're not familiar with them, you know, check out Matisse in space while indigenous, um, there's a really great podcast that just came out this past year called All My Relations with Adrian Keene and Matika Wilbur, um, I mentioned Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo by Connie Walker, there's Molly and Denali, which is a kids show, um, there's Women of Size Pod, there's a lot of stuff being made by awesome Native women, so if those things aren't already in your feed or already things that you've listened to, um, definitely subscribe and check them out. And then, um, lastly, I just wanted to, um, Mention, you know, if you're um, not a content creator, but maybe where you work or your role is you're deciding what content gets made. Um, I think that's sort of a different role in kind of the podcast ecosystem. And, you know, I hear a lot of people say that, you know, everyone's making a podcast now. There's sort of this saturation. uh, Maybe there are too many podcasts. I don't think that there are too many podcasts. Um, I think we still need more podcasts, but maybe we don't need more podcasts about, you know, a woman that was murdered <laughs> and who murdered her <laughs> and uh, the really smart guy who figured it out, right? <laughs> and so I think we need a lot more content and a lot more media um, from those voices that aren't voiceless or aren't already telling their stories, but um, aren't having the same platforms. Um, and I would also just say, to um, invite you guys to think about... Um, you know, at your organization where you work, think about, you know, the employees, maybe even then expand that out to think about all of the people that freelance at your organization and on the shows, you know, when you're booking guests, when you're booking experts, you know, if the work that you're doing is representative of the population of Native people in the United States, one out of every 50 of those people should be Native. Um, And I bet at a lot of companies, and we know this just, you know, based on the information of how we're represented in media jobs, it's zero or close to zero. So I would invite you to go back and think about, um, you know, where there are places to include more Native voices, and I'm happy to be, like, a connector or a resource for that. Um, So definitely uh, reach out to me. And thank you, everyone, so much um, for your time and your attention. I'm so excited to be at Work It. Thank you.
0: That was Rebecca Nagel speaking at the 2019 Work It Festival. Both the festival and the podcast are produced by WNYC Studios and are made possible by major funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with additional support from the Annenberg Foundation. Event sponsors include Luminary, Spotify, Spreaker, Acast, Himalaya, and the Women's Foundation of California.